Good morning. Welcome to God's House for Worship today, this Monday, as we begin another week in chapel, another long week. Next week, we don't meet on Monday. I'm going to give you the day off. We get to uh, come for a short week. I tell you, I can't wait for that weekend. I get to uh, retake some naps that have been waiting for me for the next couple of days. Uh, But today, we uh, begin with a week that has uh, begun already, yesterday, with the celebration of the baptism of our Lord. And so today, we focus on the baptism of our Lord as uh, revealed in Matthew, chapter 3. I don't have any keen PowerPoint slides to share with you. I'm not that well-prepared or responsible, but you are well-prepared because you have Bibles in front of you in the pews. And so I'm going to ask you, please, to uh, do some reading, and uh, we'll, we'll trail through some Bible gymnastics today. Uh, For those of you who have never seen me on a Monday, it's because this is my first Monday chapel. I'm Professor C.J. Armstrong, Christ College and uh, College of Arts and Sciences in the History Department, and it's my pleasure to uh, uh, speak with you today about uh, this this wonderful text, uh, this major event in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and hopefully a, a blessing as we hear and study and investigate the Word of God together. Let's begin then with a prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you bring us to your house and that we may hear your word. You speak and we listen, and this is worship. We thank you that you give us that opportunity to worship. Continue to abide with us today, through this hour, through this uh, day, through this week also, as we seek to serve you best by listening first to how you have served us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. And I'm going to ask uh, various sections to read this so that we have some context in our ears. This is year A in our common lectionary, and that means we get to run through the life and ministry of Jesus, particularly as revealed in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, The baptism of Christ is one of those uh, major events that's uh, outlined in all three of the synoptic Gospels, and so we'll hear a little bit from Mark and from Luke today as well. But we ought to begin with Matthew, and we're at the beginning of Matthew 3, with John's ministry, Jesus' cousin, John's ministry. And if you'd please uh, uh, turn with me then to Matthew chapter 3. Can somebody please, well, by somebody, I mean everybody in this section, my left, as you're looking at me, it says if we're reading Hebrew right to left, but I'm left to right here. We would like you to read, please, Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 1 and going on through verse 3, please. These three verses, and then we're going to have everybody play. Go ahead. In those days. Fantastic. You got all the big words and everything. That's wonderful. We know this bit comes from Isaiah. John is the one who is to prepare the way of the Lord. And can you imagine what John must be thinking? He knows a thing or two about messianic prophecy. He's embodying messianic Old Testament prophecy. He knows that the one who's going to come is going to come with a wallopy punch. And that's where we get to the next bit, John's ministry. Would all of you take this nice parenthetical bit from verse 4 through verse 6, please. 4, 5, and 6, read big. Now John...
We get that bit about John. We know he's the one who dressed weird and ate bugs for lunch. But the most important bits there are that last bit that you read, this idea of being uh, baptized in the Jordan, confessing their sins. A baptism of repentance, confessing their sins. And then finally, a little more from John, starting at verse 7. This section of the, of the sanctuary, please, uh, from verse 7 all the way to verse 10, please. But when he saw, Even now the axe is at the root. We stop there. We say, this is the gospel of the Lord. Right? And then we say, this is the gospel of the Lord? Because John wasn't there to be proclaiming the gospel of the Lord. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I'll tell you how to please God. I'll tell you what to do. And it's important to do this because somebody's coming and he's going to baptize you. Not in this muddy, dirty water. He's going to baptize you with fire. This is the Lord who's coming. And so, once more, what is John expecting? He's expecting what a lot of people were expecting. The king to come. Not in humility, but in glory. Not in submission, but in power. And he caps that off by starting at verse 11, saying, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's expectations are rattled, however, as we get to Jesus finally coming. Let's take a look at verse uh, 13 and following, and this really is the pericope for today, 13 to 17. Let's read this out together so that this context is in our ears as well. Starting at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the gospel of the Lord. Jesus was baptized. This is business serious enough for every year in the lectionary to assign the lesson and align the readings to deal with the event. It's serious business. As serious as Jesus being born. As serious as Mary being purified from the birth. As serious as Jesus' death and resurrection. 
But there seems to be some confusion about just what makes it serious business, at least in the conversations I've had. When I was in St. Louis, I got to TA for a mythology class at Washington University. I was taught by one of my favorite professors, a man named Carl W. Conrad, now emeritus and retired, planting his roses in North Carolina, but back then teaching us Ovid and Plato and all kinds of things. And I got to be his TA for a mythology class in which he... uh, a good, good Christian that he was, actually, would also uh, say lines like this, that uh, we know what mythology is because we read about Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, and that the real point of that myth, he'd call it a myth, was that people needed to grow up and learn maturity. This is not a question of sin and the fall. This is a question of human beings just becoming mature. And he also said something similar about this text, Matthew chapter 3, to a lot of undergraduate students in his mythology class saying, Christians have mythology too. We all get baptized. And why do we do it? Because Jesus was baptized. Well, what is this baptism all about except just a story or a tale offered to people to to explain an event that we do every day? Now, while there may be a connection to a baptism that in the Christian church we say is quite important, I think that that kind of statement really fails miserably to get at what Jesus was doing when he submitted to John's baptism. But it doesn't just stay with a a, a professor in a mythology class uh, in, in, in the Midwest so many years ago that may be still taught today that way. It also goes to notes in study Bibles that I read as uh, somebody who studies this stuff. I, I read, well, we're not really sure why it was that Jesus was baptized. We got different kinds of interpretations. Why was Jesus baptized? Well, maybe this was something just to mark the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Or the, the most important thing here is that it identified Jesus finally as God's son. And if you press that too hard, you end up in a heresy called adoptionism, that Jesus wasn't God's son until this very moment. So the Christian church and uh, uh, critical thinking about mythology and culture and these sorts of things, they, they can give us some answers. That might be fractionally near the ballpark, but I think that there's something more important here that we really need to get. Jesus was baptized. And while we might give credit to any particular interpretation... There's at least one thing that these interpretations have in common. And it's an important point that in Jesus' baptism, there is some kind of connection between his baptism and yours and mine. Somehow, the gospel writer wanted to get at the connection between you and Jesus here. But what my old professor simply failed to deal with deeply, and what many of us do, unfortunately, is in reading the text first by asking, where is Jesus in it, and why is he there? And that's a key for us as we explore this event a little bit more. So let's focus on some of the stuff that's odd first, the stuff that gives us pause Go back to these verses. I've highlighted a couple for myself, and you've got the text open to you. Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of Christ. Take a look at verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This gets to John's expectations. John was already preaching about something new going to come, about a king who would conquer, 
who'd be slamming the religious right of his day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these political parties that had a corner on how to interpret Torah, the word of God. All Jerusalem and all Judea, verse 5, Jerusalem and all Judea, all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. He had kind of a following. In fact, he has his own disciples, too. There's a sort of cult of John the baptizer. Some of those disciples end up going to Jesus later on, but his uh, ideas were, were gaining some ground. They were going out to the river, confessing their sins. I baptize you with fire for repentance. Verse 11. These are John's expectations. A little bit odd. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The end of verse 11 there. That's where Jesus is. In the expectation of John. That's where Jesus is. In the expectation of the people going out to the Jordan. But where is Jesus? As we see in the following verses, verse 13 and following, he comes not in power, but in weakness. This would have seemed odd to John. He comes not in authority, but in humility. And this may still seem odd to us, who may be used to a Christianity of success and victory. We see a Jesus coming in humility. I think it's an important point. And an important thing also to put ourselves in the seat of John, asking, where's the fire? Where's the judgment promised from Jesus? And why, on the other hand, is Jesus being treated like, well, like anybody from Jerusalem or Judea? Like a tax collector or a Roman soldier? Why is Jesus being treated like a sinner? A brief and helpful answer, I think, is that that, in fact, is exactly what's going on. That Jesus is being treated like a sinner. Jesus is being treated like a sinner. That's the road in for us. As we consider how the gospel writer tells the story, Matthew and Mark and Luke show us a Jesus who is being treated like a sinner because that's what he's come to do. Let's underscore that. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. A good verse to put to memory. You might already have it in your heart, in your head. Let's get it in our eyes too. And maybe in our ears. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians, right after 1 Corinthians. That's easy to find. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. To underscore the point of why Jesus might be treated like a sinner, what does the Apostle Paul write by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here? Let's read together. For our sake. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You hear that exchange language there? We like to talk about that happy exchange. Well, it begins with Jesus being treated like a sinner, becoming sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ came to take our sin. We talk about that in Christianity. 
That's what's going on. How does he become sin? By coming to take our sin. And what good does that do him? He can take his sin in himself to death. He takes our sin in his body to death. To put to death your sin. To put to death my sin in his flesh. So if you want a quick interpretation of what's going on in the baptism of Christ, a lens through which to read this episode and every event in Jesus' life and ministry, then hang on to this one. Jesus was baptized to save you from sin and death. Jesus was baptized to save you from sin and death. But as I say, you could do that with any event in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus was born to save you from sin and death. Jesus was transfigured on that mount of miracle to save you from sin and death. (laughs) Jesus bled in the garden. Jesus wept for Lazarus. Jesus had his feet washed. Jesus rose again to save you from sin and death. But we have a few more moments to examine the connections that are unique to this story, unique to the baptism of Christ. And so let's do this now. What was Jesus doing being baptized? Well, my old professor and many others would say he came to identify with sinners. And that is true. He came to identify. But this is more than simply identifying with sinners. This is doing something about the sinful condition The events around the baptism put exclamation points all around that too. Check it out. This Matthew text. John hesitates. He would uh, stop Jesus from doing this. I should be baptized by you. John hesitates because Jesus is the one that he said is going to judge. His winnowing fork in his hand. The axe already at the roots. But this is a Jesus who comes not to judge, but to be judged. Be judged. In your place. And the upshot of this is in verse 15. Back to Matthew chapter 3. Verse 15. What does Jesus say? He says, let it be so now. This is to fulfill all righteousness. And by righteousness here, we're talking about Jesus' obedience to his Father. Being right with God. Being right with the mission that God has sent him for. Actively fulfilling the law. Fulfilling it in ways that you and I cannot. And passively fulfilling it as well. In humility, receiving the things that sinners receive. And we notice that this is a little bit different than the tax collector or the Roman soldier coming down to the Jordan. A little bit different than all the rest of Israel coming back out into the wilderness, across the Jordan, from the promised land, back out into the desert, through the water. A little different, because when the Lord is at the center, it can't help but be different. Where's the difference? Where's the difference between a tax collector baptism... Or your, or your baptism, for that matter. And Jesus' baptism. There's, there's three points that I'd like to uh, make sure that we see. And the first is that the heavens are opened. And for this, I'd like you to turn to one more spot. This is Mark. The Gospel of Mark. No birth narrative, no incarnation narrative with, with Mark. Just uh, real quick. The rubber hits the road, and we get to the baptism of Christ, starting at chapter 1, verse 9. 
Let's look at it. Mark chapter 1, starting verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, read it with me. Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open. Listen to that. Torn. In Greek, schizomenus. That's what my Greek students sound like when they're doing their homework. And other bad words. Schizomenus. Schizomenus is the same word that Matthew uses, that Mark uses, that Luke uses at the end of the narrative. When the curtain of the temple is torn in two, heavens are torn open at Jesus' baptism. Proleptically, uh, that, that means waiting in a foreshadowing way for something else to be torn. The division between heaven and earth. He himself is our peace who broke down the dividing wall of hostility and gives us peace on earth. In Jesus' baptism, we see heaven come to earth. And we notice something else. And that's the spirit descending on Jesus like a dove, right? Where do we see water and spirit working together? Two other places I'd like you to uh, uh, jump to in the last uh, few minutes that we have. First, at the beginning of the Bible. Second, near the end. Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 3. So let's look at these couple of last verses to talk about the spirit and the water being present at Jesus' baptism. Genesis chapter 1. And John chapter 3. Genesis chapter 1. You might have this memorized too. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But this is the verse right here. Verse 2. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And here it is. Read it with me. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here we have... Our Lord, in his first words to us, uniting spirit like a mother hen, waiting for things to be created by a powerful God who creates. And how does he create? Through the very word of God, the Trinity, right there at the very beginning. Father and word and spirit working with the water to do creation, working with the water to do for sinners what they can't do for themselves, and that is read. Creation, And that's what Jesus brings up to Nicodemus at night, in the Nick at night chapter. Let's go for it. John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to him, doesn't he? He says, hey, we know you're from God. You can't do this stuff if you're not. And Jesus comes out with words immediately. Amen, amen, I say to you. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now I'm at verse 4. John chapter 3, starting verse 4. Nicodemus says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Ooh. Jesus answers, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, 
Water and the Spirit. And this is not an option. They go together like birds of a feather. This goes together. This isn't water or Spirit. This isn't water first and then later on with the Spirit. This is water and Spirit together. Dear friends in Christ, this is baptism. Heaven's open to come to you. Water and Spirit to recreate. And finally, the voice. This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved son. Why this? This voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son, that was not for Jesus. He had no doubt about it. This was for publication to the world and a connection. This beloved son is the same beloved servant of Isaiah. This beloved son is God's amen. This is why I sent you, son, This is why I sent you, to walk to the cross. Why I sent you, to die for the sins of the world. Why I sent you, to be in solidarity with them and to rescue them. And you can't rescue anyone unless you're in the place that they are. This is why Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. With all of its dirt, with all of its filth, with all of those sins confessed, with all of those sins washing over him, with all of your sins and my sins, away from us and cleansed in a baptism that now he delivers to us. He does that by putting himself in your place. And more, he puts you in his place, in your baptism. What shall we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound all the more? No. You died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That dead sinner lives no longer, drowned in the waters of baptism. Your own baptism that calls you a beloved child that calls you a child of God, that opens heaven for you. Friends in Christ, you'll hear pious platitudes saying, hey, just take things to the cross, or just focus on the cross. But the funny point about that is that you can't. The cross is not there anymore. It's made of wood. Archaeologists might say, hey, we found a piece of the true cross and that'll sell for $19.99, but wait, there's more. You get two for one if you call right now. Can't go to the cross anymore because it's not there. (sighs) We can't get there, which is why it comes to you. Jesus sends the cross to us, delivers the cross to us where? In baptism. Why it's such a miracle that you have it. Not just the baptism of Christ, but the baptism of you, where the cross is delivered to you in real water, in real word. Amen. It all rests on this that the sinless Son of God in the flesh was baptized into your death, that you might be baptized into his death and live forever. Amen. Let's stand and join together in a closing prayer and a blessing to go. We pray. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, 
Through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept us this night from all harm and danger. Pray that you would keep us this day also from sin and every evil, that all our doings in life may please you. For into your hands we commend ourselves, body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with us, that the evil foe may have no power over us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.